0: Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OscastNetwork.com for details. Get great fall savings on all your home care and entertaining needs during the fall home care event at Safeway. Head into Safeway and get deals on products like Clorox disinfecting wipes, Swiffer wet mopping cloths, Lysol all-purpose cleaner, Swiffer wet jet mopping pads, Mr. Clean multi-surface cleaner, or Lysol power toilet bowl cleaner. Visit Safeway.com or head into your local store for more details. Offers expire October 31st. Restrictions supply, Promotions may vary.
1: <laughs> that's not a knife. G'day and welcome to Not a Knife, the podcast that's all about culture, unity, reviews, and banter. I'm Andrew Pierce, and this podcast is proudly part of the Ozcast Network, where you can find other great shows like the Jaeger Day podcast and Apple Slice podcast for all of your news about Apple products. This podcast is also recorded on the lands of the Wajak people of Perth region, and I want to pay respects to their elders, both past, present, and emerging. On this particular episode, well, given that we're right in the thick of osgust the australian film month i thought i'd dig back into the archives of some of the previous podcasts that i did and dig up a pretty exciting interview that i had with director brian trenchard smith and in this interview i talked to him about his film the man from hong kong which is a superb film one of the best australian films to be honest and one of the best australian action films there is a kick-ass Blu-ray set out on Umbrella Entertainment that I highly recommend digging into and buying. Uh, it not only comes with a really beautiful print of uh, the man from Hong Kong on the disc, it's it's a nice cleaned up version of the film, uh, but it also comes with a bunch of uh, Brian's earlier works on a separate disc, as well as a truckload of special features. Honestly, it's one of the best discs out there, and highly recommended uh, you know I, I think it's fantastic. So hopefully you enjoy this interview with Brian Trenchard Smith I really enjoyed doing it and hopefully uh, in the future I get to chat to him about some of his other films as well because certainly as this is being released on the day that I recommend people seek out one of his films, he has a lot of great work out there BMX bandits, dead end drive-in a whole bunch Turkey shoot look. You name it, he's he's kind of done it. He's done a lot of brilliant stuff. Anyhow, enough from me. Let's listen to a theme song for the man from Hong Kong and then we'll jump into the interview. So welcome everybody to a very special episode. I'm I'm joined by a really really fantastic guest. I'm honoured to be able to sit down and, and have a discussion with a great Australian director and now author as well. And that is Brian Trenchard-Smith. Hello, welcome.
0: Hello, I'm. Um, uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, and uh, yeah, I have, uh, I've I've uh, written a novel. I I had. You know, I had a kind of a weird dream many, many years ago, and I woke up and I thought, "Oh, this would be an interesting premise uh, for, for a film. So I wrote a screenplay, uh, and it was optioned twice, uh, but we could never get um, the requisite level of star. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it was called The Headsman's Daughter, uh, and it took place in the 16th century uh, and present day simultaneously via a past-life uh, swap, um, and you know, a 16th century girl finds herself caught up through this, you know, you know, uh, sort of paranormal event in a 21st century spy drama. And similarly, a 21st her 21st century counterpart finds herself plunged into uh, the you know cloak and dagger world of Elizabethan um, conspiracies and politics. Uh, and uh, by this mechanism the you know the culture and societies uh, of both you know time periods can be contrasted uh, sometimes with a degree of humor but generally the accent always being on excitement and twists and turns and surprises so i realized you know when uh I was told look we love the screenplay but you know we can't get Scarlett Johansson we can't get uh, Emily Blunt we can't get uh, and all the the, the wonderful young uh, rising stars of of 10 years ago uh and so the option lapsed and you know I I put it aside but it it kept gnawing at my liver uh and I thought no I this is a, a this is a bizarre story and it's it, it's it's very me. it's it's straight out of my id um, and uh, but it also has something to say because it deals with progressive issues such as you know the you know, the, the desire of major corporations to um, privatize water. Um, and, uh, but that, that's an issue you'll find in the book and I won't talk about it, but, uh, but m- mainly I wrote it as a, as a page turner. Uh, and, and I, I do like writing prose, uh, and written a certain amount, uh, online about cinema. Um, I write, uh, I present, uh, lectures on, uh, on movies for trailers from hell uh, and I've also written pieces for another for a cinema blog called uh, Talkhouse Film um, so um, I was able to you know in two hundred and forty eight pages uh, really flesh out the characters, flesh out the politics, and try to provide as much sort of a, a dynamic imagery on the page um, so that people. Who read the book will almost feel like a movie is playing in their imagination, yeah. uh, and uh, they go on, you know, what is hopefully a, a really entertaining roller coaster ride. So, uh, and I, you know, I wasn't going to go through or jump through all the hoops you have to get to get a a top publisher because frankly the book publishing industry is in dire trouble just like the music industry was you -hmm. know 10, 15 years ago. So I decided to self-publish on Amazon and Kindle and uh, so I shamelessly self-promote my my novel (laughs) (laughs) whenever uh, someone gives me uh, the opportunity to talk. Um, But uh, uh, so, um, yeah, I – also I'm quite proud as as a an aging geezer for the way I've written a young woman um and so I think the film the, the film again I say the <laughs> film because it's a film in my mind um I, I think the book uh, uh so far I mean I've had 18 really good reviews on Amazon uh and it does seem to appeal to women but it's not So femme, as it doesn't appeal to, um, you know, fans of of rip-roaring, action-packed adventure.
1: Yeah. And I guess in today's day and age with films like, you know, the Divergent series and Hunger Games and stuff like that, um, you know, hopefully uh, this gets people excited and and fingers crossed you'll be able to turn into a film eventually. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh,
0: Absolutely. Uh, I, I do want to do that. But it might also make a very good high-end television series. I mean, if if I was to describe uh, the headsman's daughter in in genre terms, it's uh, Game of Thrones meets Jason Bourne mm. on Freaky Friday. Uh, and I'm quite sure there are some movie buffs in your audience who will who will who will understand that equation. Yes.
1: Um, <laughs> but,
0: uh, uh, and yeah, uh, so yeah it it's it, it was certainly interesting to to try and you know write a movie in prose uh, that uh, um you know will you know be a page turner mm. um so well,
1: yeah and i think the you know with tv going the way it is with you know, netflix and hbo mm. and all that kind of stuff uh it certainly hopefully is an avenue that at yeah. least if not a film then then certainly down that path that would be that would be fantastic yeah
0: Alice, the headsman's daughter, has uh, m- you know, many more adventures ahead of her. Uh, but most particularly, I think I will have to write uh, at least one sequel because there are uh, there are some wrongs to be righted. And Alice seems to be, you know, despite being four centuries behind us, she has a wisdom uh, and uh, an insight into human affairs uh, that her very simplicity. Um, uh, it it gives her an advantage, uh, and her purity of heart, though, you know, do not piss her off. (laughs) So... Uh, anyway, so I, I, I hope Alice will continue to have a a, uh, a life on the on the screen as well as uh, you know, uh, as yeah, in the book, um, and the time obviously a a young unknown will have to be found I think to play her because it really she really should be an eighteen nineteen year old girl um, so um, and then I uh, the supporting cast well there are great parts for. For a yeah you know, a hero and and lots of villains so uh, uh, that could provide the kind of the marquee name draw uh, for the project uh, and be a star maker uh, for the young girl who would play Alice.
1: Well, fingers crossed. I mean, one of the things I've been really impressed with your career as a, as a whole is you're you're a man of very many talents and you know writing a book and and. You know, directing and all this kind of stuff is is fascinating for me, at least as somebody who, uh, you know, artistically I could I could never do anything like that. So it's it's great to see that. And you know, I'm sure you
0: have skills that I do not have. <laughs> well, I instance, think, you you run a podcast. Um, that's pretty damn good.
1: <laughs> um, well one of the things i think i guess we'll go back to sort of the beginning of your career in a way and one of the reasons why i've got you to here is not only to discuss your book but also to discuss um the man from hong kong which is getting a blu-ray release at the end of october thanks to umbrella entertainment in australia and you know it's a fantastic film and I guess part of the the this particular podcast is to shine a light on australian cinema in different ways and of course during the 70s and the 80s um the new wave period was occurring and you know reinvigorating the australian film industry and and yourself you know you were quite prolific during that period um you know with films of course like the man from hong kong and turkey shoot and bmx bandits and Then you also helped do the trailers for films too. So I just kind of want to touch on the trailer aspect to start off with before we get into your films in a way. How was it creating kind of like the the first avenue for people to, you know, become acquainted with the films of that era?
0: Well, it was... um, I've always found uh, the promotion of movies interesting academically from an analytical point of view mm-hmm. as a kid going to the movies you know there would be a double feature then there would be a newsreel and then there would be the trailers for the coming attractions and sometimes I'd stay and see the program around because they didn't clear the theater after every session you could just stay there all day if you wanted to <laughs> once you a ticket, yeah, it works for me um and uh I always wondered why did they choose that bit and that bit, and that was good, or oh, that looked a little dull, or and sometimes I would uh, then I would see the films that I'd seen the trailers for, and I think ah I see, and they, they cunningly concealed this bit of information from us in the trailer, or they gave that bit away. Hmm, Should they have done that? And frankly, these days trailers do give too much away mm. because uh, the business is now get the opening weekend as big as possible. doesn't matter if you kind of spoil the total impact of the film for the, for the end user, the customer, the ticket buyer. Well, the main thing is to pack that opening weekend. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I, I do think that trailers are, uh, give too much away these days. Anyway, I, I was always fascinated by trailers. And then when I came to, uh, to work for channel 10 in Sydney, I volunteered to do Uh, Promos for them. I was a news film cutter Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes an on camera uh, reporter on some trivial story, and and sometimes I'd be sent out to shoot some film uh, on a clockwork bell and howl. uh, And uh, gone are the days. Uh, But um, now I just use my cell phone camera. Uh, So it's (laughs) sort of the same thing. Um, But uh, uh, so I said, I think, you know, station promos are a little dull, dare I say this, with all the these sort of arrogance of a 20-year-old, um, I think I could make them more interesting, and they gave me a shot, and indeed I did make them more interesting because I concentrated on sex and violence, um, <laughs> which uh, it always works. Uh, and uh, then Channel 9 kind of stole me, and I, uh, I, and I launched the New Seasons uh, uh, shows it at the beginning of 1968, and I launched shows, you know, the Australian, you know, you know well, I launched them Australian style, like uh, Star Trek, the original mm-hmm. Star Trek. Uh, and uh, um, it, it, quite, it, you know, there was a wonderful show that you know, only ran one season, the Time Tunnel. It's a, become a cult uh, show. People still, you know, buy copies of it on. on on dvd um but there were Ironside um and a, a whole mod squad uh, a whole host of those shows so that uh gave me a, you know more experience in how to do these things uh and so they were so happy with me when i said i'm going around the world to learn more about filmmaking um they gave me a reel of my stuff to take with me and i showed it to various people in america uh, and that got me a job in England making trailers for feature films uh, in for a company that made you know, a, you know most of the 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 non Hollywood or non studio system trailers. Uh, so. I ended up making trailers for Hammer Horrors. Yeah. Um, you, know, uh, you know, Frankenstein must be destroyed, you know, uh, and, and an unlikely wish. There were sort of uh, four or five more sequels. Uh, you know, Horror of Frankenstein was one of them, and I did that that trailer too. Um, but I had a wide range of different genres that I was given to work in. Um, I made the trailer, or oh, a trailer, uh, for Lindsay Addison's film, If... He hated it and then made his own, but they used mine outside of England. Um, uh, I, you know, made the trailer for Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West or the European or the British and European trailer. Um, And uh, so I had a bunch of experience in that regard, but I knew I always wanted to make films and I had to sort of make that leap now from the sort of promotion and publicity side of filmmaking to Uh, production and how was I going to do it and I had a standing invitation from uh, Clyde Packer who ran Channel 9 at that time uh, uh, uncle of of James Packer Uh, and uh, um, he said look if you ever want to come back we'll fly you back and uh, you know just keep come on working for us and I said well I, I took him up on this offer I called from England and said you know you you said you'd you'd fly me back, and I, I'm prepared to come back and do the network promos for you know a, a couple of years. But you have to give me programmes to make. And mm-hmm. he said yes, and uh, um, so away you know, he, uh, you know. My ticket was booked, and off I went. And uh, then had two glorious years at Channel Nine making you know doing the sort of the, the, the big promos for the, the the big shows they had both local and uh, um uh you know and uh you know some local productions like division 4 for instance mm. um, and uh, uh and you know i did, got to, to make you know, initially uh, uh, to be at a sort of a so- an associate producer on beauty quest uh, p- shows like Quest of Quests and uh, uh, and shoot the film se- the film sequences for that show, <clears throat> a number uh, in both years. And uh, I devised programs. Uh, I did. Uh, I said, what about a dramatised documentary about four Australians who won the Victoria Cross in Vietnam? Uh, And they said, oh, that would be interesting. And I got army uh, cooperation and duly made it. It -hmm. is a lost film now, unfortunately. Channel 9, you know, threw away the original Mm -hmm. um, tape master. But I believe someone else has just done such a film uh, for television with the same title called For Uh, Valour. But I I was able to interview the two surviving Victoria Cross winners who I think both are dead uh, before this this you know, sh- this new version was made. And I got to interview John Gorton about wow. what it's like to be shot at because he yeah, um, he had an interesting wartime experience. So I made that, and I, I also made shows about movies and um, uh, get, went around the world and interviewed stars and uh, make t- made TV specials um, with clips from their films, which was a very cheap way of actually providing local content the obligatory volume of local content for the network um because they you know they 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 were a little you know they, they knew they had to uh, you know put on a certain amount but they they wanted to sort of minimize the cost so this gave me uh, the, the movie shows that i did gave me a relationship with uh Dis- greater union theaters um most particularly through a, uh, an executive there john fraser who's you know, gone to that great studio in the sky now but uh, um, and uh, yeah, so I got to talking with the Greater Union people and then they said well why don't you, um, you know, come and um, make you know, we'll form a partnership company and uh, make some films I had by that stage made a, uh, a film called The Stuntmen mm. which was about how stuntmen did their um, you know, you know, did the tricks of the trade, it won an award in, at the Sydney Film Festival and that was that proved that I could direct action, so that was it. Was then you know it, it was my calling card when I went to Hong Kong to persuade Raymond Chow to co to co-produce co- The Man from Hong Kong, um, and uh, um, you know that's that that briefly is the the ladder, um, the somewhat crooked ladder <laughs> up which I. I ascended uh, from a lowly news cutter uh, to uh, someone who, you know, uh, wrote and directed and uh, was the co-producing partner uh, of *The Man from Hong Kong*.
1: Well, I think that's that's. I mean, it's fascinating to hear all that, especially given today today's day and age, where I guess a lot of people just kind of expect, you know, f- aspiring filmmakers in a way go, "I just want to be a filmmaker," and they expect to be able to waltz in the door and make films straight away. And, you know, there is a, there is a lot of understanding and a lot of uh, care and attention that is required before you, you can even do that. And, you know, and I think it's fascinating to hear the, the way that you um, edited, you know, and created all these, this various different content as well. So obviously, um, you know, the, the main sort of the big film was the man from Hong Kong, which is, you know, I've, I've watched it multiple times in the last couple of weeks and I watched it a lot as a kid as well. And, you know, it's it's always been a really exciting uh, action film for me because, you know, in Australia, I guess, genre cinema, um, especially in sort of the, the 90s and 2000s, has kind of disappeared a bit And with action cinema and stuff like that. We just don't make that kind of cinema anymore, which is really sad. And so it's, you know, it's exciting to be able to watch these kinds of films in and look back on the 70s and 80s and see that we did a martial arts film and and things like that. So was there any kind of resistance in Australia at that period of time? Because, of course, during the New Wave period, it was kind of, you know, it's a while ago now, but it feels like it was a bit of a free-for-all. So, yeah, was there any resistance as to say, no, don't make a martial arts film or anything like that? Or,
0: Well, I I think I was... Pretty much alone in amongst the emerging filmmakers at that time in wanting to do pure genre. I mean, I, I, I looked. I was very glad, let's say, that the government was at last investing in Australian films and had bullied. You know, well, we had bullied the government. A whole bunch of people, uh, you know, who had you know lobbied the government and said, look, there should be a withholding tax on the foreign-owned distributors' uh, receipts that they're shipping out of Australia, what about a 10% withholding tax on that? That could finance some, some uh, Australian films. And they, they were pretty terrified of that prospect. Uh, so, uh, you know, the you know, uh, Greater Union and, and, uh, and Hoyts uh, did you we know, were prepared to co-venture with government film and state film funding bodies uh, in, in in a lot of films thereafter um but uh my philosophy was we can't be a, a sheltered workshop we can't just depend upon government handouts for our, uh, our films. We must make them commercially successful. They, it is a business. That's how it is run elsewhere in the world. Mm. Though, again, in Europe, there is a lot of subsidy money if you know how to get it. Uh, but uh, it's a business. So uh, what is the international currency of the movie market? Uh, it's action. Mm. Action plays in every country in the world. A good punch-up. Uh, works just as well uh, in Australia, in England, uh, in France, in, in Russia, in Asia, um, particularly in Asia. Love a good punch-up. Uh, and uh, so uh, I thought, you know, that's, that's what we should do. And uh, One of the other things I was doing at that time was writing a quarterly movie magazine called, believe it or not, movie uh it was movie 72 when i started it and when i handed it o- over to others uh, it was movie 78 so i wrote the 60 page largely photographic glossy uh quarterly um yeah, featuring you know all the upcoming films that were going to hit australian cinemas and uh, it, this also took me around the world uh to interview people for that I interviewed uh, Steven Spielberg after, just after Jaws was uh, released, and he was preparing uh, um, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, and uh, you know a wide variety of filmmakers, uh, and so uh, I, I kind of had my my you know, my ear to the ground as to what were what. The coming trends, and I, I knew um, of the huge success of the Bruce Lee movies uh, in Asia. They hadn't hit uh, America uh, yet, uh, but you know there, there was—you know—they were going to be released. And I thought, you know, this this is amazing stuff. So I think if you can put this stuff into a Western-oriented film, um, people would go see it all over the world. And what I wanted to do with The Man from Hong Kong was to um reverse the usual cliches. Uh normally uh white uh hero goes to Asia, uh, beats up lots of Asian bad guys, uh, and you know, uh, goes to bed with Suzy Wong or, you know, generally you know takes the the um, uh, take you know has a relationship with a young Asian girl. Oh, that's, right. <laughs> that's all right stir. no no that's
1: okay. <laughs> that's all
0: right. Um now that wouldn't be permitted in a film; that would have to be cut out. But in a podcast, you, 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 you'll yes. leave it in. Uh, uh, but, um, yes, yes. Getting getting clean sound is important in a movie. Uh, uh, anyway, I so uh, I I thought well, okay, that that's the that's the formula. Whenever they have done a film in Asia, um, you know that it, it's it's very sort of. Um, Eurocentric it's top-down and uh, so why don't we do it the other way around why don't we have a Chinese Dirty Harry uh, who's a bit of a loose cannon uh, and he comes to Australia on a a routine extradition and decides you know we can do a bit better than this we can take down the top guy and he doesn't get any cooperation whatsoever so he just uh, does what Dirty Harry does he goes it alone Um, and I thought well okay that's the premise Now, I want to set it against the most attractive backgrounds I can find in Australia uh, that will, you know, suit the mechanics of the story. Uh, And, you know, that, you know, I want to show in widescreen, you know, cinemascope and color um, the awesome beauty of Australia. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start at Ayers Rock. Uh, And as it was known at that time, I know it's Uluru now. um, And... And I know that that car chase and that fight on top of the rock was offensive to the the indigenous people, but it wasn't my intention to offend them. But I was, like everyone at that time, somewhat insensitive, let's say, to their particular cultural beliefs. We've all been educated, uh, you know, since then. And now, whenever I come back to Australia, I I see little warnings that there there may be images of dead people or mm. people who are since dead <clears throat> because it, it, this is, you know, this respects an aspect of, um, of indigenous culture that, um, you know, has has now been recognized as, uh, as a sensitivity that we should be aware of. So, but I feel like I've been asked this question recently about, you know, how did you get permission there and they, they were never, they weren't happy about it and uh, uh, the evil angels had a, you know, had, or, or uh, had a problem being, you We know, took a lot of persuasion for uh, the, the, you know, the, the tribal council to al- allow filming there. Um, and, you know, they are never going to allow filming there again. So I uh, think <laughs> to a certain extent I was to blame, um, but it wasn't my desire to be insensitive. It, but, you know, when you look at the, the bold facts, uh, we got permission from the Northern Territory government. And if ever there was a government that was insensitive to Aboriginal um, uh, issues, uh, it was the Northern Territory government of that time. Uh, and uh, so uh, we benefited from their insensitivity. But um, uh, I, anyway, I said, let's start at Ayers Rock, um, because that is, that's an awesome picture of... of you know of the classic australian outback mm. uh, and uh, so i i designed a, an action scene that would take place there and my my philosophy of uh, uh, as far as man from hong kong was concerned was to have one action scene one dialogue scene one action scene one dialogue scene and so the audience actually has to put up with only 18 minutes of my somewhat arch dialogue in, in 103 minutes of, uh, of, of story. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, I constructed a fairly simple story in which, uh, which was a coat hanger for, um, a series of action set pieces against other interesting backgrounds. Um, I knew that I, it was a, a co-production I was going to be doing with a Hong Kong company and 50 percent of the film would have to be shot uh, in Hong Kong and 50 percent in Australia and that's how both sides would collectively uh, pay for the film um, however 90 percent of the film is set in Australia so Australian interiors such as the prison cell uh, the uh, um, uh, the kitchen and restaurant um uh the the villain's lair george lazenby's penthouse uh suite um it, 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 those uh, you know those uh inter- australian interiors um would you know uh, have to be shot in hong kong um and so uh, that you know, I, I therefore chose settings like a Chinese restaurant uh, and, of course, you know, Golden Harvest build great sets uh, for, for uh, Lazenby's mm-hmm. uh, penthouse. But the Chinese restaurant was an actual operating one when we'd we'd come in at about 11 o'clock at night uh, and work till 11 o'clock in the morning. And then they would go back to business. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you see the mess we made of that kitchen? Yes. Uh, and that, that rest- um, but yeah, but look, uh, there were breakaway chairs, breakaway tables that we brought for, with us and then we broke them and then they put their real tables back. Uh, but, uh, so I, I, sort of designed the thing, uh, to try and suit everybody, but to keep my basic philosophy, which was keep the action you know, flowing. Uh, and, uh, so that was, you know, that was how I said about it. Now you asked, was there resistance? Well, there were many, groups who were trying to get you know greater union uh, theaters to invest in their particular project uh and you know it, there was a desire by many to make sort of more high-minded um culturally oriented you know uh, australian stories stories of australia's past um and this is all well and good uh, and I would have liked to have made some of those films uh, and and a, a couple of them I think I could have made um, uh, let 's say to be you know, uh, you know, more uh, let 's say yeah more exciting or more more yeah. sort of uh, le- yeah less slow moving shall we say um, but because uh, the the, you know, the international audience is not going to be familiar with all the the nuances and flavors of uh, of Australian society uh, and its past. I mean, but but some very great art house films, as far as the rest of the world was concerned, were made mm. uh, in Australia at that time. Picnic at Hanging Rock, I think, was uh, uh, an outstanding example. Uh, and you know, s- subsequently, of course, you know, Gallipoli. I mean, but Gallipoli was an internationally themed film. It was about mm. the uh, uh, you know the futility uh, and misery of war. Uh, but you know, anyway, but, so. I was sort of, kind of, uh, you know, I was a Johnny come lately in a way because I I'd made a lateral move into production from publicity and promotion, um, uh, and I was you know wanting to do stuff that people thought was you know trivial or you know low class if you like in terms of uh, of what a high minded filmmaker should be thinking about. Sure. Um, so, uh, but I didn't care. Uh, maybe I should have cared a bit more. But so I, I continued to make action vehicles uh, that I knew I could sell internationally, and I could still get, um, I could still get backing. Um, so uh, that was that was my philosophy. Now, you know, I wish I had made. Yeah, you know, God, I would love to have made Sunday Too Far Away. I would love to have made uh, Silver City. Um eh, you, know, were, you know, I would love to have made some of the great miniseries uh, that Australia produced in the 80s. But I was too typed as the sort of B-movie action man to be given uh, that opportunity. But, yeah, I made my bed and have, you know, lain in it. Uh, for 50 years uh, with you know relative comfort shall we say
1: <laughs> well that's the thing is that you know going back to what you're saying before you know action cinema is is a money maker in you know and i guess in a way like those films the the australian films i guess in the sense of you know they, they tell a, a australian history story and in, in that regards they're very good films but um, not really going to light up the box office the way that an action film could do, or have the cross market appeal that then action film could do. Um, but with with your action films, I think they they're all fantastic, and you know they they really are. The action sequences are superbly shot and just really really wonderfully choreographed. You know the car chase sequences, of course, are, are just brilliant, and and the the actual fighting itself is just fantastic too. Um, so I'm curious about how like, you, you worked with Grant Page, who is fantastic and uh, really just a, a brilliant guy. And, of course, Sammo Hung uh, had involvement as well. So when you're working with people like that to create these sequences and do the stunts as well, how do you go back about planning, you know, sequences like the, the fight on, on Airs Rock or or the, uh, the, the leap from the building at the end of the, the film as well. How do you plan those kinds of events?
0: Well, uh, uh, I mean, I've got certain images in my mind, obviously, that I'm bringing to the table uh, uh, when we you know, set about uh, you know, the, the sequence. I mean, obviously, I've chosen the location uh, and... Um, and found the parts of the location that will uh, that can most sort of go together, or I can exploit as many different looks in the time and the schedule um, involved. I had to do, you know, I had to do the Airs Rock sequence, you know, basically in three days, uh, and uh, I climbed Airs Rock three times in a day uh, at one point, <laughs> wow. uh, nine hundred feet, um, and suddenly, you know, I, I had a fine set of calves at the, <laughs> the end of that that shoot, but Sam Hung, who was the 22 year old uh, brilliant young you know, stuntman choreographer that Golden Harvest had, had, had acquired uh, he didn't speak any English and I didn't speak any Mandarin or, or Cantonese uh, so, and there was no, no interpreter there for us, we, in all the Sydney sequences we had an interpreter uh, but he went home with Wong Yu uh, mm-hmm. And this was a scene without Wong Yu so uh, so Samo uh, and I communicated kind of with sign language, uh, which you can kind of, you can choreograph a fight with sign language and you know when um, I you know said that i I wanted Roger Ward kicked in the balls from behind you know i I, I sort of leant against the side of of the rock and that little depression that we did it in, um, bending forward, and then with my arm behind me pointed at at my my ass uh, <laughs> and he got he got he he, he he got the message and that that's the moment when he you know you you don't quite it's a nice little surprise when you know roger gets sort of n- knocked you know away and he's facing and he's he hits the side of this depression and then uh, you know instead of yeah you know, uh, and and Samo just sort of kicks him in the balls from behind, uh, and that is the first of many groin kicks in in, in, yes. in, in the, the film, which is another of my little eccentricities I'm afraid. Uh, i 'm afraid i don 't know what this tells you about me from a freudian standpoint but uh, <laughs> um, but uh, prior to the to that time. Yeah, groin kicks were just not allowed in movies, um, and so I did many of them <laughs> in that film. And many of them were cut out in other parts of the world, and particularly the UK. Uh, at least they they had the good sense to uh, uh, and the recognition of what I was a, about to allow uh, Wong Yu to kick Samo in the balls, uh, uh, and uh, when I then cut to. Um, uh, a a pool table uh, and uh, the opening shot, he, he exploding the triangle of balls, uh, and that, that's another example of my my subtlety. Um, I but love that they, as the, as the well, <laughs> Got the joke uh, and allowed that one, but cut virtually every other grind kick uh, and uh, and the squeezing of, of Grant's balls. You know the the, the the squirrel grip moment. We call it. Um, uh, that was cut out in England and probably other places Uh, but anyway uh, I I worked with SAMA with sign language uh, and I think we we did a nice little fight Um, obviously western uh, actors and and stuntmen um, are not as flexible or as fast uh, as the trained Chinese uh, counterparts Uh, so it's often a way that you you you, know, you 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 see a greater fluidity in all uh, Asian martial artists than at that period in in, in, in cinema than uh, you know uh, Hollywood heroes uh, you know, could could muster. I mean, uh, and you, you you look at how you look at Enter the Dragon, and you, you look at how John Saxon, who was a uh, who who learned karate and had lessons from Bruce Lee. You, you you look at you know how high he can get his leg mm. compared to how high you know a chinese actor can get his leg and that's um, you know there's a world of difference uh so uh, w- we had to deal with the fact that you know uh we we had to make our guys look good yeah. uh and uh, and that was you know that was challenging i mean uh george lazenby had, had a lot of good taekwondo training uh and uh, so he, he comes off quite well. But generally, from a Chinese point of view, we are slower than they are. Mm. Uh, and we had, to, we had to work on that. Uh, and that can be done with choice of angle or, um, you know, fast cutting or, in some cases, speeding up the film. Sure. The film was shot at 24 frames per second. Uh, so if you then shoot it at 22 frames per second, you will imperceptibly speed up the action. I mean, I I can perceive it, but the regular audience won't. If you go down to 20 frames per second, which they used to do quite a lot to make horses go faster in the sort of 30s and 40s and 50s of Westerns, you can see it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's going too far. But So there were these little tricks of the trade. But generally, as far as the choreographing of the fight scenes, you plug into the expertise of the participants uh, and uh, work around it my uh, the way I had you know written the, the kitchen and restaurant fight really was you uh, know n- n- not uh, pages and pages of description I just said the fight uses every unpleasant weapon uh, available in the kitchen and so uh, then way I came to the kitchen and I looked at what they had um, and I thought great um, can we get some dry ice in that big wok to make it look like it's boiling water uh, and have, you know, have somebody, one, of the, you know, one of the two of them throw it at the other? And we, we think that you know, boiling water has been thrown. Uh, eh, those hooks that uh, uh, get swiped, uh, those are real. And the, the choppers are <laughs> real. And, you know, we had to be careful uh, and use the real items. Uh, that uh, that were there in the kitchen. Um, And uh, uh, so, you know, (coughs) and we did it, you know, obviously in sequence progressing uh, uh, all the way through the fight. And as you can see, yeah, Grant's pants split uh, and he has these sort of bright yellow underwear uh, that become available uh, (laughs) or visible, let's say. Uh, at, at some point um, and of course in those days we didn't think about double costumes uh, we just thought oh it's jeans will be fine you know um, we didn't expect it to to you know, split up the groin uh, so anyway so that it, I get often asked about whether the uh, the, the yellow pants was de- were deliberate uh, but uh, and I'd like to take credit for that uh, but actually That was an accident, and and often I find sometimes accidents. uh, Yeah, uh, it was a happy accident. Uh, I thought. I think that's funny. I mean, people's clothes do get ripped in fights uh And this was unintentional, but hey, it happened, so let's use it, and let's go with it uh so hence the yellow underwear i'm I'm actually ans- answering a question that other people have asked me about the 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 yellow underwear did i did I plan that well,
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that you know I like that aspect of it because it adds to the the scrappiness of the fight and you know and it doesn't it is choreographed, but it doesn't fit, it doesn't come across as excessively so choreographed. You know, it doesn't feel like somebody's behind the scenes manufacturing it and, and all that. It feels very, very real and I think mm. that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah.
0: So well, I mean, Wang Yu uh, had had a few real fights in mm. his life including with two Chinese policemen who were trying to arrest him, I think, for uh, speeding. Uh, and uh, So he, he's had his his yeah, you know, he he's a, a, was a well-practiced fighter, and it, what he brought to his movies, uh, his Hong Kong movies, was a less stylized, classical uh, martial arts technique, and more of a street fighter. Mm. Uh, and and I thought that would be good um, to 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 that his style would work well for the story, um, and you know the more balletic style uh, of martial arts. Uh, is fine uh, in, let's yeah, say, a Chinese period piece, uh, or a, uh, you know, like the the one-armed swordsman, the one-armed boxer, Master of the Flying Guillotine, uh, and uh, Beach of the War Gods, which incidentally is a a really good uh, you know uh, Hong Kong movie that Wong Yu himself directed, was shot in Taiwan actually. Sure. Have you ever seen Beach of the War Gods?
1: I haven't, but you know, I have I have seen some of his uh, his Hong Kong stuff, and you know it's really exciting. But I'll have to track it down because
0: yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of the the Magnificent Seven in period dress, uh, uh you know the the. the the evil Japanese are uh, are you know, persecuting this village. So he recruits his, you know, uh, his specialists of different weapons, and they come in and they they slaughter the you know, the, the invaders. Uh, and but it's uh, it, it's it's very well choreographed, but in the classical uh, uh, you know uh, you know kind of fantastical mm. style um, with much uh, impossible leaping uh, <laughs> and, and so forth. Uh, but but great stuff to watch.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll have to track it down for sure. Um, I think
0: you can find it on DVD.
1: Yeah. So one of the things which I always has always amazed me about this film is that, you know, the this obviously there there's so much to talk about with the action sequences, but the one that really amazes me is the explosion in Sydney, you know, in in that always like it's obviously it's uh, it's real, it's something, you know, the the there's a lot of fire and stuff there. So how did, how was the reaction to that with the, you know, with people in Sydney at the time? And, and was there any kind of upset regarding that at all? Or?
0: Um, yes, there was a little <laughs> bit of an upset. Um, the explosion could be seen for 30 miles. Um, it was on the top of the Esso building, which is the, uh, I don't I think they've demolished that building since. And I, occasion to add that that was not because we blew it up. Uh, but no, I mean, we uh, we got permission from that building uh, to uh, put little, um, uh, you yeah, what we call our pots, uh, which, you know, contained uh, a, a naphthalene, yeah, you know, napalm-like uh, mixture, mm-hmm. uh, and they were to go on the outside ledge of uh, the, you know, the, the top floor. Um, and the blast would be directed outwards. Um, and, yeah, I, frankly, it left some scorch marks on the uh, uh, on the ledge, which you know, we said it wouldn't uh, damage the – it didn't damage the window. We'd sort of uh, uh, protected the window. Uh, but we had – you know, there were some scorch marks which were hard to remove. Mm. But, you know, um, it, it, they were on the very top f- – floor ledge so that that was okay that went off fine and we had notified the fire department what we were doing and there was a uh, fire station right opposite the building and the fire firemen were all watching what we were doing and finding it quite entertaining um, but the whole thing was meant to have been concluded by four o'clock in the afternoon which we didn't know was when the shift changed uh, right across uh, Sydney um, we were meant to have done uh the explosion on the roof um by then but we still had you know just getting cam get getting a a large pyrotechnic um uh you know a- event co- you know, coordinated safely uh you know took a little bit of of doing and i don't think the owners of the building are quite aware of the size of the fireball that we uh, were're putting on that roof now you 've seen the roof in yeah. the film. Uh, there are lots of open space, um, nothing flammable particularly uh, there so uh, w- and we had hired someone who 'd worked on apocalypse now and done a certain amount of the um, uh, the uh, those huge napalm explosions in the jungle. Um, And he was an Australian who had worked on on that film. Um, And uh, he'd shown us some demonstrations of his work. And I even uh, had shot some of it already for what would then eventually be the four-part TV series, Danger Freaks, that I I did um, the next year. Um, So I had faith in him. um, And... uh, we, you know, we were ready to go, but it was past four um, and we didn't actually uh, you know, think that that was a problem because all the guys at the the fire station across the street were watching and anxious for the next big bang. Um, so um, I called action and uh, the explosion was detonated um, and it was Kind of a bigger fireball, I think, than anyone was quite expecting, and it was uh, could be seen for thirty miles. And uh, I think initially, you know, traffic on the harbour bridge, which uh, was not far away, slowed, <laughs> wondering what has happened. You know, has the Esso building exploded? Uh, and uh, uh, so uh, there was a little bit of, uh, uh, of flack for that because. Naturally, uh, the, the new shift at all the fire brigade stations across Sydney had no knowledge that this was going to happen. It was supposed to have happened before their shift. So, suddenly, massive numbers of fire engines suddenly converged on the on our street. Um, and there were kind of, well, red faces all around, including mine. Yes. Um, but, uh, look, I will... You know, I don't mean to be cavalier and uh, insensitive about it, but but nobody was hurt. No damage was done um, other than some scorch marks uh, on the the window ledge at the top floor. Um, And nobody, you know, crashed into a a car by being distracted by the the explosion uh, because once that fireball had uh, gone off, uh, then residual smoke, you know, Mm. remained. Uh, but it wasn't like, <clears throat> in the end, there were conti- going to be continuous explosions. So, <coughs> pardon me. Uh, but it, we, yeah, I would say that we were all learning on the job. Uh, we'd never done anything this big or this complex in terms of action staging. Uh, and so there were a few little issues that uh, slipped through the cracks. Now, when I blow something up, and, I, you know, I, I, I do blow things up from time to time and, and, and I enjoy doing it, uh, it, it I, I had a motto in those days if in doubt blow it up or at least set fire to it um, because fire is great production value and fire is relatively cheap uh, so you know fire in an action scene can bring yeah, something to life hence you know that's why I, I set fire to George Lazenby um, because you know I wanted to have a Uh, I wanted to have a star actually do his own fire stunt just as Wong Yu and a host of other Hong Kong stars had already done Mm. in Hong Kong. Uh, But no Western star had, in 1974, when we actually shot the movie, uh, to my knowledge, had actually done their own fire stunt. They generally had a a stunt double who was wearing a full fire suit. Uh, We were using this new fire retardant jelly called water gel. Um, which yeah, has now you know, been you know, pirated <laughs> uh, over the, across the world and uh, it 's called stunt gel or there are many different uh, brands of it and it 's been refined to such an extent incidentally that you can actually put this gel on your face and it can and, and there's a, you can actually set your face on fire uh, because it 's a very low yield uh, low burn um, you, know, uh, you know, particular chemical balance that both insulates the the surface and provides something that uh, can be ignited. And I think you'll find demonstrations of this from uh, stunt teams and, and pyrotechnic people on on YouTube. Uh, anyway, back to, uh, you know, back to, to, to the explosion. Um, yeah. Uh, nowadays, we will, you know, we pay much more attention to safety um, because, you know, uh, we've learned and uh, you don't want to, you know, anyone to get hurt uh, when you're making a movie. A movie is there for entertainment. It's not finding a cure for cancer. Uh, no one you know, should, get, you know, should get hurt. Um, so um, that's, yeah. that's how films should be approached. It's an, it, it is a complicated industrial manufacturing process uh, where there are lots of opportunities for accidents. Um, things you know you've got lights that can fall over you've got electrical you know cables um, and you're working in a hurry because time is money so you you have to take into account uh, and have skilled people and skilled problem predictors uh, when you're doing action sequences
1: yes and you know, I'm repeating myself here again, but the action sequences in your films are just fantastic. And you know, I i guess it's you know the 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 learning aspect of of the you know these action sequences is makes for some really really entertaining uh cinema. So that's it's fantastic. Now I won't keep you much longer. I have I've just got one more question, and then uh, I'll let you uh, head on your your way for your day. Um, There's usually, there's one question which I always ask guests when I come on, especially when we're talking about Australian cinema, and that is, is there a particular Australian film that you would recommend people track down or seek out, doesn't matter when it came from, that you think is really uh, sort of uh, indicative of, of, you know, the the Australian cinema as a whole? It can be one of your films as well, if you want to. (laughs) 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 Putting you on the spot here.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I actually yeah that 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 i wish I had had time to think about that um but uh, uh because yeah there are films that have uh, of uh, that i've really enjoyed uh that uh, um you know that i you know, uh, uh, that everyone has enjoyed i to try and think of one that has not been given the credit that it is due um uh, i mm it would be easy to, you know, pluck something, uh, um, you know, uh, out of the air. I mean, I think Next of Kin, it was an underrated horror movie. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, mm, yes. Uh, and and also, frankly, I haven't seen nearly as many uh, um, uh, Australian films as have been made since I, you know, Made my move to to Hollywood, sure. uh, which you know I at the that at the time that I made that move in 1990, um, there weren't many opportunities uh, for me to, uh, to to make the kind of films that I was good at uh, in, in Australia. They that such films had fallen into disfavor, um, and uh, so I had to go where. I felt that I could uh, have my skills recognised, uh, but I have come back to Australia many times to make you know, generally American financed uh, tele movies or series. Um, but uh, so there are a lot of films that I have missed, and I would be doing people an injustice, I think, uh, uh, you know, if um, uh, to you know because there are you know there are some very worthy pieces. Um, but
1: um, Next of Kin is a great film, though it's it's very. It good. Is. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. But that, that, but it it was never given any credit at the time. It has mm-hmm. got uh, it, it's got a lot of credit since, uh, generally by, uh, by by international critics. I mean, the one film of mine that got no respect in Australia. Um, uh, well apart from Turkey Shoot obviously but but that that was understandable I suppose Uh, but Dead End Drive-In I think is one of my best films Uh, and uh, there's a Blu-ray that's come out in the UK and uh, uh, America there's no inclination for people to do a Blu-ray in Australia because it was never a well thought of film but it's very well thought of by Quentin Tarantino Mm. who you know mentioned it, it, singled it out particularly for praise in Not Quite Hollywood, Mark Hartley's great uh, documentary about these very years that you talk about. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, uh, so Dead End Drive-In, I think, is is in its way uh, an old-fashioned exploitation movie in the classic tradition of putting some political uh, comment into... Um, an exploitation formula, uh, but then elevating the whole thing by, by virtue of what the film is saying subtextually. Um, it was a film that dared to be socially and culturally critical of its very target audience, teenagers uh, <laughs> and Layabout youths uh, um, uh, who, you know, once upon a time would go to the drive-in. And by the time we made that movie, they were all sitting on their couches watching uh, VHS. Uh, but anyway, it was with, it, it was a film that had something to say, particularly about uh, racial prejudice. Uh, and it was, you know, it, it was not reviled in the way that critics reviled Turkey Shoot. When I understand their point of view. Uh, but I really was surprised they didn't get it. Uh, they didn't get Dan Drive-In. Uh, and the distributor, you know, decided to open it in a theatre that was still undergoing remodelling. Mm. Uh, <laughs> some people I t- told me, I- I- we couldn't find which hall it was playing in, in this multiplex. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, but you know, I think uh, history has proved me right, and uh, the the, you know, the response to the Blu-ray of *Dead End Drive-in* in the UK and America has been phenomenal. Uh, and uh, it's a film I'm very proud of. Um, and uh, but yeah, it, it didn't get the respect it deserved. But there are many other filmmakers who have suffered similar fates uh, with um you know w- with films that were either mishandled in distribution or you know just uh you know you know were not critically understood mm. and i'm sure you would have your list i mean do you have a favorite neglected film from the last 25 years
1: um yeah i mean the one of the films that we've covered which was welcome to whoop whoop um which was Stephen oh, elliott's follow-up to priscilla queen of the Desert. It's it's a equally loved and equally hated film. <laughs> but I it's it's one that I, I have great affection for. And so that's my kind of go-to pick as a, as a film that if people haven't seen it, I recommend catching it, yeah. Um, but one of the things I really enjoy about your films is, as you were saying about Dead End Drive-In and, and I promise I'll wrap up in a second, but um, is it that you do have that subtext. You know, they aren't just, you know, genre films there, there is something more to them. And, you know, man from Hong Kong has a, it's a, as he was saying at the beginning, it's, it's a very progressive film because of the way you've cast in the, the roles that you've, you've cast people in. So I think that's really, that elevates your films much higher. And, And I I feel sorry for anybody who doesn't enjoy Turkey Shoot as well because, you know, it's a personal favourite of mine. I think it's a a wonderful film and really informed my taste of cinema uh, as I grew up quite a lot. So,
0: yeah. And you appreciate the vein of satire. Yes. That is (laughs) present in all my films. Yeah. And... uh, well, I won't say all. I've made some, s- some more serious films. I mean, DC 911 Time of Crisis about what went on in the White House in the 10 days that followed the 911 attacks. That is played dead straight. Uh there are a couple of little subtle moments which might be seen to be critical of George Bush, um, and reveal that he had his eyesight set on invading Iraq and he had the pretext, uh, that kind of escaped the notice of the right wing producers. Uh, but, uh, but that was a dead straight film with none of my, uh, kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, uh, sense of satire. But, and there are a couple of others as well. Uh, but, uh, you know i like to celebrate and and uh, you know uh, have have a you know a little bit of fun with whatever genre that i'm i'm working in and you know siege of firebase gloria is you know a a war movie um, but it's also you know, and it was progressive very progressive in its day because it suggested that the viet cong were brave too mm. um, uh, but it, it you know it has a, a strong vein of black comedy um, in the way that uh, Lee Ermey plays the, the central part. Uh, and uh, have you seen Siege of Firebase, Gloria?
1: I haven't, actually, uh, unfortunately. I, I definitely need to seek it out, for sure, yeah. I, you,
0: you will particularly like it. Anyway, it's uh, out on Blu-ray, and, and if you have multi-region, yes. um, you you, that uh, honestly, worth investing. Uh, getting getting yourself a copy and getting a bunch of people around. And I think it, it, it like Dead End Drive In. I think it's one of my finest films.
1: Yeah, and you know, Dead End Drive In is, is
0: wonderful. Uh, yeah, Man from Hong Kong, uh, uh, BMX Bandits, Dead End Drive In, Siege of Firebase Gloria, and Stunt Rock. Um, those, you know. Those those films all are very me in yes. terms of my eccentricities uh, and and my skills.
1: Yes, we will be covering BMX Bandits on a on a future episode uh, sometime next year. So I'm looking forward to discussing that with somebody who hasn't seen. It, I, I believe. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. But yeah, I thoroughly enjoy um, you know all of your films and, and thoroughly enjoyed this discussion. It was it was really fantastic and hopefully. Well, thank you. Yeah,
0: for your informed questions, <laughs> they I'm
1: help. Sure. Oh yes, I, I well, I, you know, I've grown up watching your film, so I've, I've, yeah, it's, it's been a great honour to be able to discuss them with you, and hopefully, uh, the Head'sman's Daughter, um, please, people, go and pick it up on Amazon. Um, the more you and pick Kindle. it up, yeah, and Kindle mm. as well, and the more you buy, uh, the greater chance that you know we'll be able to see a film of it or a TV series so fingers crossed
0: <laughs> thank you very much no worries and, uh, and good morning to you and uh, well and good night to you i guess too it's
1: <laughs> yes yes so, and you, you have a fantastic day cool
0: i will thanks very much <laughs>
1: Brian Trenchard Smith talking about his film, The Man from Hong Kong. I highly recommend seeking it out because it's a damn good film. A lot of fun, a lot of entertainment, and one of the best things I think about this interview is that, you know, Brian is somebody who has reflected on his work and certainly talking about the fight that is really technically impressive that is staged on Uluru. His cultural sensitivity to that now is like, I probably would not shoot that sequence now. I find that really interesting and it's nice to see that a director such as himself is able to look back and say, look, these are the things that I probably would do differently now if I had a second chance. That theme song is Sky High by Jigsaw. As far as I understand, it is probably the biggest song that Jigsaw ever had. Uh, whether it was big or not, I don't know. I really like it. It's a great, great theme song. And, you know, for all of those uh, Bond fans out there, of course, you know, this film does star a Bond in it. So that's something. And he's a villain, too. Anyway, that's enough about the man from Hong Kong and Brian Trenchard-Smith. I hope you enjoyed this interview. I know the audio is probably a little bit... Eh, not so crash hot, but doesn't matter. It was an early interview that I did and one that I felt was really uh, great in trying to uh, bring back for Ausgust Australian Film Month. Hopefully you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, then head over to the website thecurb.com.au where you can listen to previous episodes Head over to Apple Podcasts or any of the the podcast streaming apps that you listen to. Leave a rating, a review would be fantastic. Five stars would be tops. Uh, If you want to go the extra step, you can also follow me on social media, The Curb AU, on both on Facebook and on Twitter. If you have a question or a suggestion or something that you would like to hear covered on Not A Knife, then hit me up with uh, an email at thecurbau at gmail.com. Finally, you can also support me on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash thecurbau, where as little as a dollar a month just helps keeping this show going wonderfully. And there's some great rewards on there, especially if you hit that $15 tier, then, you know, I am bundling up some great things for people who support me at that level i I really appreciate that anyway look that's enough from me another long episode i keep on meaning to keep these things short but uh really you know on that particular interview with brian i could have gone on for ages uh, just like i'm going on now anyway that's enough from me i will see you on the next episode of not a knife i see you've played knifey spoonie before
0: love this podcast support it and sponsor today. Simply head to oscastnetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away.
1: Connecting to remote operating room.
0: Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call.
1: Operation complete.
0: The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere. It's internet built for tomorrow, today